Welcome to Gospel Conversations, our continued exploration of the frontiers of Christian thought. In Gospel Conversations, we're remorselessly committed to the idea that thought's got frontiers and horizons. It's not just uh, a box set of um, uncontentious uh, axioms, particularly the theology of the divine of our great God, must be viewed as a landscape and like every landscape it's got frontiers and the frontiers by definition of the infinite will always be receding we'll never get to them but the more we push toward them the more we grow and this year we've been looking at Hebrews we're now getting to the end of Hebrews there's one more to go after this but this talk uh, continues the theme of resurrection and the resurrection order and how that applies to the world of judgment. Because Hebrews, as we've, uh, as we've mentioned before, is, is, a, is a strangely paradoxical book. Most of it is, is full of very comforting and actually quite extreme grace, where he makes the point again and again and again of the finality and the compl exhaustive completeness of Christ's sacrifice, to which we can add nothing. And, and therefore, we must build on that a life of confidence. However, in the same epistle, there are three or four passages that are pretty sobering and that would, uh, at, at face value, uh, seem, seem uh, scary. And so where, where do they fit in? And furthermore, if we, if we took a more positive view, uh, rather than just trying to explain these away, do, does the resurrection order and the, the implications of this resurrection order being established, established in the heavens, um, does that help us think judgment through from a different perspective? Uh, certainly, I, I, I make the point in this, in this uh, talk that in my experience is that the traditional evangelical frameworks didn't help with judgment because... It puts so much emphasis on conversion uh, that there's not much to lose and not much to gain uh, post-conversion. And so in a way, in a funny way, the, 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 the heavy emphasis on some of the traditional thought lines of the evangelical gospel um, tend to leave us with bad choices, but, but not with the kind of exciting range of... Uh, what's up for grabs and of possibility and of consequences that most of the rest of life does. Well, we try and uh, approach that and, and, and do something positive in this talk. This one uh, focuses uh, on the theme of inheritance. Now, it's pretty clear in, in all of Hebrews that it's been building up to inheritance as one of the big uh, motifs or governing metaphors that dominate the world view of the writer. So we look at inheritance, we look at it uh, textually, we look at the particular passage where he first introduces, introduces it, which is quite extraordinary because it's chapter 9 and, and he really focuses on, the, on the, the, the critical element of the metaphor of inheritance being the, the transfer of assets from one to another. So we look at that transfer, and it's a transfer, he says, that can only uh, be occasioned by a death. So we, we explore uh, the implications of this metaphor, that inheritance and the way he handles it is both a matter 
of rights and responsibilities because the transfer of assets is a transfer not just of wealth, uh, not just of resources, but also of the job to be done. I hope you enjoy this talk. It's certainly not meant to be uh, uh, the last word on the topic. It's more an opening word uh, to get things going. So God bless you as you listen to it. Uh, and uh, you know, look forward to any comments people make on the website about it, um, but take the ideas and run with them. So tonight, this is the sixth talk we're doing. I think we've got one more, and, and we're in the back half of the book. Uh, the, the general title um, remains our, a robust title, Resurrection Trumping Religion. But as we move to the back half of the book, uh, which we have been doing over the last two or three talks, uh, yes, he confronts um, he confronts the topic of the resurrection, what I what call the resurrection order. His phrase is the order of Melchizedek. And the concept uh, of the uh, order of Melchizedek clearly dominates the book. It, it is actually his main point. It's very obvious. Any reading of the book that's intelligent will, will come across that. Melchizedek is a strange, uh, for us, a strange persona, um, but, but he makes very plain that Melchizedek essentially is his archetype of the resurrection, the, the resurrection order. And so he really unpacks that in chapter 6, 7, 8 and 9, but he does move through uh, towards the, 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 latter, the latter three chapters of the book, which is what we'll talk about tonight and... And, and our last talk. Um, and in those chapters, uh, there certainly are some passages that are sobering and, and they sit rather uneasily with this incredibly uh, sweeping, uncompromising picture he's got of grace. And um, so we're, we're continuing to look at how do we put these two things back together. And I've called this one tonight Resurrection and Responsibility. I've chosen the word responsibility. It's not in the text. But I think it's a really, really good word for us to, uh, to consider. Um, and it'll become clearer uh, as to why I think that. Now, um, the, the last talk, uh, if you can remember, we actually looked at this, uh, I think, really um, uh, intriguing, almost philosophical issue of incarnation. And... Um, it's an issue that Ron's really begun to unpack a year or two back with the theory of Zimzum, the Jewish mystical theory, which essentially is, is, is God's, God's greatness is most evidenced when he restrains it. So this, this incredible paradox between eternal power and sovereignty and restraint, uh, and it uh, is, is, is the theme that we had another look at, and I think next year we'll keep going at it, and, and I introduced the idea of the two kingdoms, kingdom one being the definitely biblical ideas of a transcendent, omnipotent, all-powerful God. And the minute you begin to think about such a God, you really hit deep philosophical problems as to how on earth that God could ever connect with a created order. Um, because a created order, by definition, will be about contingency, it won't be about eternity, it'll be about accidents, it'll be about surprise. And, and 
leave sin out of this entirely. There's just a huge metaphysical problem. And that, it's really important for us to get this because, you know, and in many ways the early church, whom we might criticise, and their heretics thought more than modern people do. I mean, the Gnostics, the Gnostics' answer was they can't be integrated. And about half the New Testament is written against Gnosticism. So if you can't, don't understand Gnosticism, I don't know how you read 1 and 2 John uh, or John's Gospel. They, they really, and, and, and if, if you don't understand that Gnosticism is a very plausible reaction to this problem, and if you don't see the problem they saw, then you don't see the grandness of the solution. I mean, how can an eternal God ever connect with something that is not eternal? It's, uh, and the more you see that as a problem, the more you see the solution, the incarnation is, as indeed a, a great mystery. We talked about that last week, and I'm not going to go over it again, but we introduced the idea of two levels of kingdom, kingdom one and kingdom two. And kingdom two being um, essentially what rule would look like in a created order. If I brought kingdom one together with the earth, what would it look like? And, and so much of uh, uh, the uh, life of Christ is, is the evidence of that. So what we looked at last time was the condescension of Christ might be a way of putting it. And we looked at it through these very big archetypal words, metaphors that clearly govern Hebrews um, to do with uh, Christ being made perfect. And we went into that in a lot of detail. We talked about the fact that um, his handling, uh, where I, I always assume it's Apollos, but the writer to the Hebrews' handling of this idea of Christ being made perfect, that phrase is unique in the New Testament. Only he uses it. But he doesn't use it once. It's about half a dozen times. It's clearly not just an accidentally chosen word. It's a big theme. So we, we looked at that. I'm not going to go over that again. This time, we're going to look at what's equally mysterious. And what's equally mysterious is the upside, which is how can mortal, finite human beings participate in a project begun by an immortal God? So, so we get... We get problems with that the minute we think about it because we're limited, we're mortal, we're, um, we're not God. How can we be an earth be central to his purposes? And, of course, um, the book of Hebrews, and I've uh, in an earlier talk really emphasised that chapter 2 is the archetypal chapter in Hebrews. It says everything going. In a sense, lifts humanity up and Christ down. Um, and uh, only when we get a bigger view of humanity can we begin to understand how God could become incarnate. And tonight we're looking more at this second, how do we get lifted? Now, the big word, the big word with Christ was this idea of being perfected. There's an equally dominant word which is going to frame the first, or frame most of what we talk about tonight, and it's inheritance. That's the word he uses, inheritance. That's, that's the word where we're lifted to the game. Um, so we find out that somehow or other humanity is going to participate in this kingdom. Not, and not just you know, participate in a very central way. Um, so the question now is how does life, humanity, contingency play a part in the eternal kingdom? You know, surely our experience invalidates kingship. You know, I, I often criticise Plato, but you've really got to respect Plato, because Plato asked questions that other people didn't thought of. I mean, the issue is, and it's, it's, I mean, only in Christ will it be resolved, how does change get into an eternal kingdom? Think about it. They're just utter contradictions in terms. 
And change makes our life gorgeous, it makes it wonderful, but it commits us to death. Yeah, I, I think about that regularly when I go to the gym. Like, I'm thinking, this is going to be feel so good at 7.30 when I walk out of here. And I've done it, and it's fantastic. And, and at one level, I think this is great, this is achievement. I walk out of it and think, you're on the road to death. <laughs> 6.45 is gone forever. You can't get it back again. Um, there is an inherent contradiction between the passage of time and anything that's framed in time and eternity. How's it going to work? Well, you know, Plato couldn't answer that question. I don't, but, but I don't blame him. But I think he understood the, the inherent paradox more than we do. So um, where we're going to move to tonight is, yes, our participation, but the human responsibility part of this. Um, and in the light of the resurrection order, can we build a framework for human responsibility, judgment, accountability, or whatever? So let's have a quick look, um, as we've been doing the whole time, at the big picture of the structure of Hebrews. This is the, the structure of the second half of Hebrews. Um, and I've mentioned before, for those who weren't here, that Hebrews is a bifurcated book. It's a book that hinges on chapter 6 with you know, the bit before leading up to it, and then chapter 6, his big theme, and amplifying it. So from chapter 6, essentially he introduces the notion of resurrection as the new dominating um, principle of the new order, and he amplifies that for essentially three chapters, half of 6, all of 7, all of 8, half of 9. That's four chapters. And we've, we've been going through that. We're not going to go through it again. And then in chapter 10... It's almost the break point. It, he moves into, as it were, the consequences. I've made the point that Christ's introduced a new order and we almost get into a so what. Um, and he, his, his climactic end in the first half of chapter 10 is the end of the law, law being finished. He really wraps that point up. And, but then the second half of chapter 10 begins with the word therefore. So therefore is now clearly... Um, we're now moving into the, uh, into the behavioural consequences of that and essentially, uh, therefore, and what if. Now, I've marked in red the judgment passages. This is the first of them. But what if someone refuses all of this? That's the second half of Chapter 10. What if? I mean, you've got to ask that question. Um, and there's a what if and there's a but, that's the structure. Then he moves into chapter 11 as the example of faith and the life of faith. And that's really important because the climax of chapter 11 is actually not chapter 11, it's chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Christ is the pioneer of faith, by the way. The translation is not the pioneer and perfecter, perfecter again, new, same word, of our faith. Many translations used to say that which tends to make it a proprietary thing, like he's, he's neglected our catechism or he's neglected... No, it, it, the word our should not be there, so the, the, the modern NIV doesn't have it. He's the perfecter of faith, period. Christ is the perfecter of faith. So that climaxes chapter 11, and then we get in chapter 12, a great chapter which we're not going to look at tonight, treat hardship as discipline. Um as the discipline of faith developing. And the second half of chapter 12 is this, it is, it is a Wagnerian climax, the great eschaton of Mount Zion, the kingdom which cannot 
be shaken in the two mountains. So that's the kind of structure. Because there's a dark bit in chapter 12. So the, the red is the dark bits. So if you want to pick out the passages that people hit and think, what does this mean? The second half of chapter 6, there's a dark bit. Second half of chapter 10, there's a dark bit. Second half of chapter 12, it's a dark bit. So, we, so it's very paradoxical because the rest of it is like radical grace and then there are these dark bits. How do they fit together? So that's what the three dark bits we're going to talk about tonight. Thank you. Um, but by the way, I actually think uh, God and the Holy Spirit and the writer of Hebrews are great motivational psychologists. Um, and the reason is that uh, now in what's called positive psychology, which really has grown out of the University of Pittsburgh and Martin Seligman and others, and people are beginning to look at what motivates human beings for high performance. It's actually magnificent work. And what they've realised is human beings need a bit of... Well, I don't know why you need PhDs to work this out, but human beings need a, a combination of a stick and a carrot. But what we tend to do is give people a lot more stick than we do carrot. And it backfires. Because um, human beings who are anxious and fearful underperform. They don't learn well. They don't play well in sport. If they're thinking about failure, they will fail. So it all backfires. If I want someone to be a superb performer, they need a bit of that, but actually they need more positives. They, they, they need more positives. And the ratio, they've actually gone as far as the ratio, very sobering for us who are parents, by the way, how much we criticise our kids versus how much we praise them, is a minimum of three to one. You need three times as much praise as you do criticism. That's a minimum. If you go six one, that's okay. But if you go two to one, that's not okay. Because somehow or other we're wired for guilt. <laughs> well, I think his ratio is pretty good, don't you? Look, there's only three dark bits and it's across like... <laughs> I haven't counted the verses, but I think he's way ahead of three to one. You know, that's <laughs> at one level. Now, um, so, so yes, we're going to go into these passages tonight. But first of all, I do want to look at the big ideas that structure this text. Because he uses... Just as we looked at last week, it is clear in reading it that the, some of the words are the tips of icebergs. So they're in literary terms, and we, you know, we were obviously blessed by Sarah's talks at the beginning of the year on the Bible as literature. In very good literature, one of the great tools the writer has are metaphors. And a metaphor can in some case, become a governing metaphor. I mean, you'd see it in a great film, you'd see it in a great novel, it just can, it echoes through the text, and it's structuring this subterranean level of meaning. And um, it's no accident uh, when that happens. Now, I think... So, so these words are working as metaphors... Th th these words are working as metaphors. And the number one word I've already introduced is inheritance. Inheritance. It's used several times, but it's clearly um, going even uh, beyond um, just a, 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 casual, a casual use. So an we're going to get into this tonight, but this word is very interesting. Very interesting. Remember we went right back to the beginning and we, you know, part of our goals was to get a non, uh, in Bonhoeffer's term, uh, like a, a religionless Christianity. 
Well, inheritance comes out of the world of economics. It's, a, it's an economic metaphor. And I'm going to tonight show you what I think is the most stunning use of that economic metaphor. That I'm only preparing for this talk has become clear to me. There's an absolutely stunning use, which we'll get to. So the inheritance is about the transfer of assets. That's what's happening. We're going to talk a lot more about that metaphor. All inheritance need promise because inheritances really are at the discretion of the original owner. Hmm? Yeah, so that's from promise. Uh, we don't earn them, and so there is a heavy use of the concept of promise in these latter chapters of Hebrews. What is it that we inherit? You inherit something, and the metaphor that is the dominant metaphor is the kingdom, is the kingdom. And that's the metaphor that ends the book. Now, I say it's a metaphor because when we get into it, you'll see that it's, there's a cluster of words around kingdom. But the other big word is city and architecture. Right, so there's a, this is a civic landscape that is inherited. That's what a kingdom is. A kingdom is not personal salvation, really important point. Nothing to do with my soul being saved as the end of this. It's, it's not in view. <coughs> the operating principle by which all this happens in today's world is faith. And not today, but next week, I do want to climb inside that word more. Because before you receive the inheritance, you've got to have faith you're going to get it. You might have it promised, but you haven't got it. Now... That's, do that's the dominating architecture, I think, that frames these, the latter half of the book. Importantly, there's two ways of looking at inheritance. There's absolutely two ways. You can look at it from the point of view of gift and grace. It's great, I'm getting something. Fantastic, winning a lottery. All me, wacko, this is fantastic. That's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is this is a very big responsibility because whoever, whoever the benefactor is, if they're serious about the inheritance, isn't just distributing their assets, they're distributing their responsibilities, they're distributing their goals, they are bequeathing something that's really important to them and they don't want you to stuff it up. The example I will give is uh, intergenerational change of a company, which Anne and I are involved in at the moment. So we know what this feels like. So, inheritance in Hebrews, chapter 9 is the real introduction. I'm going to uh, go at this, uh, a couple of, uh, this passage a couple of times. But the, uh, let's just, it's the first, this is the second half of chapter 9, after he's gone through the resurrection and the redemption passages about the new cosmos, he says, for this reason, really interesting, for this purpose, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. For what purpose? That those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. That goal, the end game of this whole 
resurrection mechanism. It's not there for its own sake. It's there to accomplish something, and he names it as in order that we might receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he's died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So that phrase is the one I want to lift out. Um, now, I'm not going to read the whole passage through at the moment, but the next bit is important um, uh, because he develops his metaphor. He develops it. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. So he's actually, in that sentence, gone inside the mechanism of inheritance. So this tells me this is not casual. Um, Paul uh, does use inheritance quite a lot. In Romans 7, he talks about, I, I had thought in Romans 7, he did exactly what uh, uh, the writer of the Hebrews is doing here, which is unpack the metaphor, but I checked it up and, and it's not quite the same. It's about, in Romans 7, the metaphor of death is used, but it's, it's being freed from an uh, old marriage to go to a new marriage. So it's not quite the same thing. So what happens in an inheritance? Let's look at, let's look at, let's, let's go into the metaphor. Let's look at it. Um, what you have in inheritance is you have assets. And the assets have an owner. So ownership is really an important concept here. In our case, I mean, you could have an inheritance that's not worth much, but you could have an inheritance that's vast. <coughs> and clearly, what we have in view here are vast, vast assets with an owner. There are beneficiaries, and the object of the inheritance is to transfer the ownership of the assets to the beneficiaries. So this is not a loan, like, ah, oh, you can dig into this and take bits and pieces of it as you want. This is, that's not inheritance. Inheritance is you get the lot. And importantly, and this is the sobering thing, there is no way back for the benefactor. Once it's yours, I can't... You can... The, the, the tough thing about ownership, and let me speak as someone who owns a company and has thought about participation and equity, is once you give it away, you can't take it back. So, the transfer is permanent and irrevocable in inheritances. And nothing makes that clearer than the fact that it's death that makes it happen. So does that, yeah, play? If we apply this metaphor, and it's clearly not, uh, there's no difficulty in applying it, the assets are all that the Logos owns, which is the entire created order, including life itself. Those are the assets that Christ has. The life that formed the universe and the whole goal was to transfer it to us. Those are the assets. So we are talking about a global exchange of assets at a vast scale that is not matched anywhere in any human story. The beneficiaries, the church, us who 
humanity, the new humanity, this new ownership now has a vast responsibility with these assets. It's not just a right. It's not just, great, I've got another million dollars in the bank account. Uh, what has been transferred to me is the ownership of the cosmos by the one who created it. And what made that happen in his argument, which is was the death of Christ, which is the ir ir irrevocable transfer <laughs> of those assets to us. So that's the metaphor. Sobering, isn't it? And I mean, it's great, but it's sobering. Now, what is very, very interesting, let's have a look at this fact. Inheritance is a, a non-religious metaphor. I mean, it doesn't come to me out of the world of religion and rituals. It comes to me out of the world of economics. Um, and it's, it's possibly also a civic metaphor because if it's the transfer of assets, it's the transfer of estates, it's the transfer of governorship. What it is not, it is not a medical metaphor. And, and a lot of the redemptive... Uh, I'm not saying these metaphors are wrong because they're definitely there in the Bible, but they're not in view here in Hebrews. So cleansing... They were in passages that you had. Yeah, they, they are. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no... Yeah, let's, yeah, I'll come to that in a moment. Just <laughs> hold your horses, my dear. Coming to that in a moment. The, the argument in the cleansing of sins is that there's some kind of therapeutic, medicinal, almost toxic cleansing by the power of the blood. The argument in the forgiveness metaphor, it's a judicial metaphor. Now, I'm arguing they are not the metaphor he uses. This is astonishing. So let's go back to the passage. He has argued that only... So why did Jesus die? What's the importance of shedding of blood? His, his answer is clear because it, it's death. He says that's why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. Why? Because death had to occur. Because we're transferring assets. It says in the last verse, in verse 22, it says, in fact, the law requires that everything needs to be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Exactly. So what he is doing in this is that he is subordinating all of those religious metaphors to the economic metaphor that the goal of the whole thing is the transfer of assets. That's why it's all taking place. So the ransom, he, the ransom that's, a, that's, a, that's a money metaphor. Uh, it, it, is, it is a money metaphor. I mean, he's actually mixing them up. But what is really interesting about this passage is that the, the dominating metaphor is the inheritance and the transfer of assets and his argument as to why Christ had to shed blood and why, in, in fact, in the whole of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the, the, the blood had to be shed is because death has to occur for assets to be transferred. That's actually what he's saying. And so he's subordinating the the shedding of blood um, and, and the death and the whole sacrificial system, which true happens from verses 18 down to verse 28, to the idea that God, a death had to occur in order for assets to go from A to B. Now, this is uh, really, really interesting in the book of Hebrews, which is so heavily into the sacrificial system. So he's in the sacrificial system, but he has clearly said that why did there has to be a sacrifice? Because there has to be a death. Why does there have to be a death? So that, because only by a death can the assets go from the benefactor to the beneficiaries. No death, no transfer. 
it's the death, the asset. No, no, the asset is not the death at all. Uh, well, the death is just the transfer. He just he's arguing that in 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 the economic system we're used to, that if I, that that in an inheritance the transfer is occasioned by the event of a death, and if there's a will made, then that death. I, so if, if I have a will. And in that will, I've promised you $10 million. You can walk around as if you've got $10 million, but you haven't got them until I die. When I die, you get the $10 million. That's his argument. So. Um, it's not that he's not talking about sin, he's not talking about um, uh, cleansing, mm. free, free from sin and... Uh, forgive, he's got a, both the judicial and the kind yeah, of medicinal there, metaphor. But you're saying they're subservient to inheritance. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. The passage says. The passage begins, if I read that as a passage, the opening sentence begins for this reason. So in legislation, um, when you're writing legislation, and I've, I've written, I've designed how Australian legislation is written um, in a past life. Um, and what we decided to do, I and the lawyers, to make it understandable, if there's a passage, there, there's, you know, we're doing taxation law, if there's going to be a, um, a regulation written, it makes no sense if you don't explain the purpose of the regulation because you read the regulation and you read the mechanisms and it doesn't make any sense unless you explain why we're doing this. And funnily enough, in traditional legislation, they didn't have what's called a purpose clause, but we made it a mandatory part of the format that there, for every provision there had to be a purpose clause up the front why, what behaviour we, you know, what goal are we trying to achieve by this mechanism? So, in a sense, you could read the opening sentence as a purpose clause, God's purpose, God's ultimate purpose in this, um, which is the dominant metaphor of uh, huge inheritance, and therefore, the um, mechanism of cleansing and death is explained. So, I don't want to keep going on this. So, I planted the idea in your mind. You can. You know, read the passage over and over again and think about it, but I find it really, really interesting. But the death was necessary because of the holiness of God. Well, it was. Uh, that's, a, that's a judicial metaphor. He's saying the death was necessary because God wanted to transfer assets to it. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying. Now, the way to read the Bible, I believe, is through multiple perspectives. I'm not somebody who believes in only one. Um, I would argue the judicial metaphor has overplayed since the Reformation by a long, long way, here's a massive example of an economic metaphor being the dominant metaphor. To me, as a linguist, it's absolutely very clear what he's saying, as taken as a whole. I think that the eternal inheritance is an additional economic benefit to the man. OK, well, I don't agree. So let's move on. Can I just, um, a in a normal, uh, humanly speaking, the, the, the transfer occurs once there's the death, and so the, the recipient then has all that's been transferred. But with, with Christ's death, he continues to be a participant so that we are joint heirs with Christ. So that, in a sense, we have that incredible benefit and, and it's transferred to us and yet Christ is still an integral part of it. That's true. And like every metaphor, it breaks down at a point. Um, but the whole issue is that in Christ's resurrection state, 
Um, he's taken us with them. He could not do that except for his death. That's what chapter two says. Um, it's the big solidarity chapter. So obviously, the way, look, the way a metaphor works is it's, in, in the words of T.S. Eliot, my hero in many ways, that great language is a raid on the inarticulate and it's always failing. You're trying to describe something and you have to have several goes at it. And if you're a good describer of things, you take angle one and now I'll take angle two. And those are called perspectives. And in, in uh, the, the ability to handle multiple perspectives is clearly absolutely critical to literature. Uh, but the first person who made this very plain to me in the Bible uh, was Mark, that it's a multi-perspectival <coughs> view of what God has done. You know, you look at it judicially, you look at it medically. We're looking at it economically t tonight. Um, and and it, it became obvious to me some time ago that the preponderant metaphor of the parables arguably are economic. There was an owner of a harvest who wanted a return on his investment. I mean, the, I'm giving you talents and I want some back. You know, it's a banking metaphor. Anyway, I, I don't want to keep going, otherwise we'll be here all night and this and my wife told me to talk shorter. Um, <laughs> so I've got to keep moving. That's one big word and I hope... It's, it's stimulated your thinking. Uh, the kingdom motif is the, other, is the other one, and it pervades the book, but it ends the book. I put the word end in inverted commas because it doesn't just finish the book off, it consummates the book. And this is chapter 12. Um, we're not going to look at this in detail tonight. I, I think next week I, I will, but there's this epic, magnificent conclusion where you need either Beethoven or Wagner in the background playing as you read it, he, he says, you have not come to the Mount of Doom and Gloom. He actually has that phrase, Doom and Gloom. I haven't got it up there. There are two mountains in view. And um, uh, he says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, uh, that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm. You have not come to darkness, gloom and storm, Mount Sinai. You haven't come to the law. You've come to this mountain, uh, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. So it's a, it's a vast civic system clustered around God. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So a wonderful passage. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So this kingdom motif um, finishes the book off. And as I said before, it is a model that um, actually is... That there are a cluster of civic metaphors in the book around the concept of a city. He mentions it there. It, 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 it really dominates chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place, he would later receive as his inheritance, same concept, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going, rather like us. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country 
He lived in tents, as did uh, Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking for the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. So that's another huge metaphor of the city, the kingdom to be received. Um, And then it's built upon further in chapter 11. All these people were still living by faith. They didn't receive what was promised. They just saw them from a distance. People who say such things show they are looking for a country of their own. Countries. The metaphor is all civic. It's all national. It's all kingdom. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they could have gone back. Instead, they were longing for a better country, heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. So this idea of what's being inherited is a city, the New, the new Jerusalem. And promise began the whole section. I won't go through this, but in chapter 6, the whole of chapter 6, when he begins the huge transition from the hinge point uh, around the death of the law um, and it, 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 that hinge point is beginning with Abraham when God made his promise to Abraham since there was no one greater to swear by he swore by himself. So it was promise that kicked it all off. And as I said before, promise is very much an, is the volition of the promiser. It's his decision. It's It's... Relentless, he won't change it. The whole thing, the whole point about this is this whole mechanism um, is secured by the unchangeable, uh, single minded purpose of God, this vast system of inheritance. Is the metaphor of the city, is that the way the author of Hebrews deal with the idea of incorporation? If all, of course, gives him body. Yes, yes. Yes, I think that's right. It's this idea, the idea of um, a, a, a corporate. Um, shared new system that's built around Christ. <coughs> One case, the body; the other, the city. Which goes beyond the economic metaphor. It goes, go, it definitely goes beyond an economic metaphor. Uh, it goes into, a, I think, kingdom is a bigger metaphor. But yeah, so, so, so with that framework, um, which is uh, quite, quite a, a mind-blowing framework, and, and one that really. We've got to bear in mind, we then return to this question about, well, where does responsibility fit into this? Where does human responsibility fit into this new kingdom? And let's put it really succinctly. I think he's got an issue here, which many of us face in a way. Having established a radical new ground of grace, he's given up all the easy behavioural levers of guilt, anxiety, punishment... You can't go back to those. He can't say, he can't say things like, you know, well, if you give Christ up, you'll lose your salvation. He can't say anything like that. He's actually established a vastly, radically uh, clear ground of grace. So he's swept aside, as it were, the typical behavioural controls. Um, so once he's put us on this ground, uh, which is very secure. What then, how does judgment work? What are the responsibilities, responses and consequences of this post-resurrection order? Um, 
Here are four questions that I suggest we do not try to answer um, because they are the wrong questions. And um, one of, the, uh, one of the, the, the big mistakes you can make in life is to answer a question that is the wrong question to be asked. Um, if somebody says to me, um, something like, um, how are we going to restructure this organisation in order to save costs? If I answer that question, I have admitted that you need to restructure this organisation in order to save costs by answering your question. I might say that is a really stupid question. It's got an assumption built into it that I don't share. I'm not coming from that place. I don't think you're going to save this organisation by restructuring it, actually. I don't, think it's, I don't think you should put your eggs in that basket. I'm not going to answer that question. Do you see what I mean? So you've got to be careful what question you decide you want to address. You just don't say, because someone's asked a question, I should therefore answer it. That's a very important debating technique. Um, I used to be the first speaker in debating, and my whole job was to redefine the topic in a way that the opposition... <laughs> it's a, okay, it's a political technique. Just for those on the tape who didn't know, my wife suggested it's a political technique, but anyway. Um, it's a rhetorical technique. Now, uh, the first question is, I think um, these are paradigms that I suspect are far too limited. One is the conversion paradigm. The whole linchpin of the gospel is conversion. Uh, individual conversion. Are these people saved or not that he's talking to? Are they converted or not? Which side are they of that ledger, converted or unconverted? Now, the idea of conversion is useful. Don't get me wrong. But it's also a two-edged sword, which I've seen a lot of people suffer from, including our children, who are the children of Christian parents, who sometimes struggle to, you know, to find a moment of blinding conversion that they can't find. It's not always, it actually can be as problematic as it is promising. If, if, we think that's, if we think the whole entry to the kingdom of God is by a very clear black-to-white conversion, which some of us in this room have experienced, but others have not, then it, it, it's problematic if I'm in the grey area. Does that make sense to people? Conversion is a human side. Regeneration is the divine side. It, that is true, and we'll go even further than that. But, that but, but your point is exactly correct, that conversion is a human view of what has happened. It's actually not in view from God's point of view. I mean... There's, there's plenty of things in view from God. I'm saying it is not helpful in this, uh, this uh, looking at these questions. The second thing is uh, the whole sanctification and obedience pathway. This is a really, really interesting one. I was, I, I'd like to say a lot more about it, but you know that in, in the evangelical tradition that dominated my thinking, the very dominance of conversion makes everything else an anticlimax. And you haven't got a lot to lose and you haven't got a lot to gain from that point on. And frankly, that's how I live my life. It's like the big things happened. It's not exactly all downhill from now, but it, there's not a lot of edge to this. There's not a lot of range. Of all you've got to gain is other conversions of other people. Yeah, you've got to gain. Exactly. That's it. Uh, yeah, yeah, you keep on. <laughs> that's right. It's, a, it's an infinitely regressive system. And, and it's... Um, Huh? 
It's pyramid selling. <laughs> it's a pyramid selling system. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that psychology is. Uh, I think it leads to not much to say or too much to say in a lot of the preaching and teaching we do. Um, so I won't go further into that, except I think it's a really, really big issue. And, and what I'm going to go on and talk about tonight has given me personally much more interesting ways to look at the, the consequences. Mm -hmm. But the, um, I always had the metaphor of it was like conversion meant now you can just wait on the railway station and wait for the train to come. That's right. That's right. That's right. And getting a few other people to join the try. That's right. Um, it's pretty boring. It's pretty boring. So, of course, we, we, know, we know these words are there, but going back to what I said about metaphor, I think they're perspectives on the great work of God, but they're not the only perspectives, and I'd argue they've, they need to be redressed with something a bit bigger. Third one is just individual destinies. We think a lot about this, you know. Um, I mean, it's, it's, a really, it's a really big issue. Um, yeah, people we know who don't name Christ or haven't heard of Christ or person X or Y, you know, what's their individual... This dominates our thinking a lot in our discourse. And the fourth one is really important, which is heaven and hell as the end game. You know, paradise, heaven and hell. I, I, I for instance, uh, I don't know how many of you watched Suzanne and I did the late line where they had... Um, the atheist, is it Sam Harris, discussing with a Muslim... They've co-written a book, he and a Muslim author. It was quite, I, th I thought it was all very good because they've, they've you know, it's humanised. It, they're meeting in the middle. It's rather nice, but... And they weren't discussing belief. Is that the one? Yes. They were, they were being interviewed. They were discussing how we could get common ground that could help with the de-radicalisation of young people. That, that's what the book's about. But what was good was I actually thought... I rejoice in this because they kind of come together on common humanity with a common purpose. Um, both of them were softening their sides. You know, both of them were saying, uh, you know, Sam was saying, well, there's no way that I'm, I'm going to convert to my atheism or the Muslims of the world, so I've given up on that. I just want to talk a bit of sense into them. And the, the Muslim was saying the same thing. It was actually quite healthy. But what he did say, what one thing Sam Harris did say during the course of the interview was the was the um, terrible influence that heaven has had on the Muslim behaviour and he added, and Christianity, right? Because the earth, I mean, yes, we can look at ISIS and suicide bombing as extremes, but they're actually taking something to a logical con conclusion, which is this earth doesn't matter, only heaven does. So I can trash the earth and... You know, there's, you know it, was a, it was a terrible logic, but they were explaining that a suicide bomber, there's no victims because they're all going to heaven as well, the people I blow up, as well as me. And he's looking at that saying, you know, this is a dangerous way to think. But he was... Now, Christianity's not right out there, but I certainly, as a young Christian, thinking this earth doesn't matter, all that matters is heaven, you can see that it's a trajectory going in that direction. Now, we know he's wrong, but nonetheless, the heaven, hell is the... That's the ultimate destiny of everything is, is, is uh, misleading. Uh, the nasty part about the hell bit is, of course, this idea of burning in hell, you know, which is a, the most horrific metaphor of, I mean, if you put your hand over a flame, it's pretty intense pain. And that's your destiny for the entire of eternity is not a pretty picture. It's a medieval picture. I don't agree with it. 
he does. He does. So we've got to go into that. I'm not going to go into that one tonight, but I mean, they're worth a read. I'm going to talk a bit about it tonight. But I'll talk about it here because you've already seen if you if you our God is a consuming fire. It happens in 12 and in 10. He uses the fire metaphor. So is he therefore, if I read those passages through the heaven and hell, so there it is. Our God's a consuming fire. He's a pyromaniac and he loves toasting people. Right? So I can read that in it. So we've got to do something with it. I'm saying actually these questions are simply not in view by the writer to the Hebrews. He doesn't come out. I'd be surprised by them. I don't think he comes out of that worldview at all. Um, so sorry, my description of hell and heaven is India is hell and Sydney is heaven. Yeah. Sorry, I mean, you, you choose where you want to go. Well, yeah, well, that's not, that's not, I don't want to take that <laughs> pathway tonight, please. <laughs> let, let me just pursue this. Let, let me explain from a gospel, from a richer point of view of, I think, the New Testament. I'm just going to explain how these four paradigms are somewhat. They're metaphors and they're not dominant metaphors. So in the New Testament, the great turning point is not any individual. It is the historical death of Christ. That is what the whole of the New Testament's about. That's the turning point. The great conversion of the ages is not anthropological. It's historical. And, and you can read it again and again and again. I mean, the person who first introduced me to this point, if you want to really get into it, is the magnificent theologian Ritterboss, Herman Ritterboss, his book on Paul's theology, where his major critique of evangelicalism is it's personalised and it turned anthropological. The turning point of the ages is the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. That's the only one that they're always... And we're on the other side of it. So, so that's biblical. Uh, the second one is, I think, the dominant metaphor, we'll get onto this a bit more, it's not sanctification, but it is rewards and it is quality, that they do matter and they're different. Um, the destiny in view is not of individuals but of the kingdom. Um, and the heaven and hell is not the end game, the new Jerusalem and the new kingdom. So if you read down the right-hand side, they're the... To me, they're the big picture paradigms that the writer to the Hebrews was writing in, to which the questions on the left-hand side would have been as strange to him as, as perhaps his is to us. So with that in view, let us um, look at these three key passages. And what I'm going to do now is look at them one by one, and then I'm going to finish with a story. And I hope, uh, um, I hope that will take us to the next level of, of a very positive view of judgment and responsibility. I don't think I can answer the question tonight, but I'm just hoping to open a door. So the first of the passages is chapter 6, and here's what it says. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is uh, farmed, receives the blessings of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. So this if I read this through the heaven and hell thing, is, okay, this is it, we're going to be burned. Um, he actually immediately after this goes on to say, well, no, I don't believe in um, this of you. But if we just can toss aside those evangelical frameworks that I just said were not helpful and just say, what is he saying here? Because I think what he's saying here is absolutely logical. The concept is God wants a harvest from the earth. So, Ron, you're a farmer. I presume if your farm produces thistles and weeds, you are very dissatisfied with it and you're going to get rid of it and you're going to do something. That is what you're going to do. 
You're not going to rejoice in the thistles and weeds. It's a, you spray them out. You get rid of them. You exterminate them. We all know what that's like. That is absolutely right behaviour. And if God has in view reward for the cosmos, he's going to want harvest. That's, that's all he's saying. So the unarguable point, which I think is a magnificent point, is God wants a harvest from the earth and from us. And he has exactly the same expectations as we would have were we farmers. Now, he... Uh, uh, and the harvest metaphor is clearly you know, very dominant in the, in the New Testament. I don't know how anyone could not say it's, it's absolutely a wonderful metaphor and important. But it is developed in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I think 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is incredibly important because this is the, 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 the one place in the New Testament where this idea of harvest and burning is absolutely taken further by Paul. And this is what Paul says. And he's talking about building and building up people and teaching and um, that's how he begins. He talks about Paul and Apollos and I planted the seed and Apollos watered it. So it's a harvest metaphor. So the work of our lives as teachers, preachers, etc., is to spread the word and see it sprout and see people grow. That's the work of our lives. One plants, another one waters. So it's all a harvesting farming metaphor. We're co- why? We're co-workers in God's service. We're part of the kingdom and you're God's building. So... He's really in the same metaphorical space as we've got here. He says, um, each one should, however, build with care. For no one can lay any foundation than what's already been laid. That's Jesus Christ. The foundation's laid. What we build on it, however, is very optional. That's sobering. And that is the story of 2,000 years of efforts in Christianity. The, the variety of buildings, for good or for bad, on that foundation has varied greatly in quality. Would we not all agree? And he says this is very sobering. If anyone builds on this foundation gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, whatever they build, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light, it will be revealed with fire. Now, this is a better use of the fire imagery, and this is the one that dominates in the Bible, which is fire as some kind of transformation mechanism. We have, whenever you have a big chemical reaction, you need heat. That's what energy does. It transforms stuff and reveals stuff. And the fire will reveal what will it test? The quality of each one's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet the builder will be saved, even though only is escaping through the flames. I think that is a very illuminating passage. There's a lot to lose. It's not that having... OK, now that I've met Christ, there's a heck of a range of options open to me as to what I'm going to build upon. That found. I can't change the foundation, entirely agrees. What I build on it, and the word he uses, is quality. The quality of what I build. Not quantity, but quality. And that's sobering for us all. I mean, it's exciting because the, the better quality, it'll, it'll be, it'll endure, it'll, 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 it'll go on. But what if I lived a fruitless life? Then all my works are burned up, which I think explains the Hebrews 6 passage. So what we're looking at 
is I think, and I think this is this is what is his being said, rewards and quality are way underplayed in our doctrine of um, responsibility and obedience. I can always remember when I was at the airport in um, Papua with my, our dear friend Lippius, who is one who will have much to go into the new kingdom. He was tired. He's grappling with the Indonesians. He has a vast a million people in these churches and he just said to me, uh, Tony, we have great rewards to look forward to. And it struck me when he said it, you know, that for most of my life I've never been so motivated because to me rewards was something you're not meant to want. You don't do anything for reward, you do it for intrinsic value. Well, no, that's not actually how life works. You do stuff for reward. It's a really good thing to do. And clearly reading Paul, Paul is looking forward to a crown. He's looking forward to fruit. And so it seems to me here to be a very much a huge contingent space, a range of options which all of us have open as to how, how much we build on what Christ has done. And that is optional. But our salvation is not, that's what he's saying. So personal redemption is not in view, but the idea of fire testing the quality is. That's that one. Um, the next one is in chapter 10, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received knowledge of the truth there's no sacrifice for sins left so you can't hope for any redemptive play God's played out his redemptive play the train's left the station he's made his big move we're in the post redemption phase so all that's left is judgment that's the next big eschatological event the end of everything and all that's left for us is a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. So this burning up and judgment is all that we can expect. And then he goes on and talks about anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who's trampled the Son of God underfoot? Now, and this passage here is really sobering. Um, what I'm interested in is uh, two things about it. The first thing is that they are actually rhetorical questions that he does not answer. He, he doesn't answer the questions. He just says, essentially he's saying this, which seems to me to be absolutely unarguable. We are dealing with someone who is awesome. If we are talking here about the God who created the universe and it was the origin of all things, then I wouldn't be messing with him in modern terms is what he's saying. I, I would not be taking the chance. I would not be putting my eggs in the wrong basket if he's acted because who knows? Who knows um, what precarious ground I'm standing on? What have I got to look forward to except I don't know? And he doesn't answer the question. And I think that's quite important because I actually don't... My personal view is the Bible does not answer the questions of details of judgment. It's there, it's declared, but the Bible to me... Um, develops the mechanisms of salvation a hundred times more than it develops the mechanisms of exactly what judgment is going to happen and to who. It declares it as a, as a position, but it doesn't say how it will work. It, and I think it's for a very good reason, which is we are not going to be the judges of the eternal destiny of other people. God is. We are, however, the agents of salvation. So I think he's saying to me here the obvious thing that 
the very enormity of what he's argued everywhere else in Hebrews, the enormity of the fact that God is transferring huge assets to us is a two-edged sword. It's good news and it's very sobering because if you think you're going to trifle with that, it's a bit like I, he's like, I wouldn't be in your shoes. And he doesn't go further than that, really. If you read the, the text clearly, he doesn't go further. Um, we could say more about that one, but then the, the, the last one is the passage we already read, um, uh, which is he's going to, don't refuse him who speaks. If they didn't escape when they refused him who warned them, how much less will we? He, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicating the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God as a consuming fire. This is a fantastic passage and it's because um, it's about them receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I, I do think, by the way, I'm not going into this in detail, but for the Jews at this time, uh, this did get... I think this was written before the temple was destroyed, is my guess, and their world was absolutely shaken. So there was a local judgment that they saw with their very eyes. All they put their faith in got smashed by the Romans, probably just five years after this was written. But that's just a picture of the, um, uh, of the future. So I think what he's saying here is don't refuse the word who's spoken because his intention is absolutely relentless. He, he doesn't have another plan. He's, he's absolutely committed to this. And he's just saying to me the very obvious thing, that I, you, you wouldn't be trifling with someone of that intention. Um, because, and don't put your eggs in the wrong basket, which is the world of evident physical things. He's going to destroy all that, put your eggs in the eternal basket. So those three passages, to me, they're sobering, but they're absolutely inevitable to have as the flip side of this message of, message of grace. But I think they're more about his intentionality and uh, what he's doing uh, um, um, through his kingdom. Um, the fire metaphor in scripture I played with, I didn't know what fire was, you know, so I, I did a Google search on fire. Um, and I think it's really cool. Um, I actually think... It, uh, sorry, really cool. <laughs> um, it's hot. It's a hot metaphor. I, uh, I think he's playing with a burning bush. I think it begins with a burning bush thing. But essentially... You know, the typical connotations I had with fire were this kind of roasting in hell and God is a torturer. I think that's just a post-medieval picture we've picked up. It's not biblical. What's biblical is much more. I think the biblical use of the, of the metaphor and its connotations is fire is a purifier and a transformative agent. Um, I've got their fire as a purifier compared with, compared with water. Now, I... I didn't have time to check this on Dr. Google, but I'm pretty sure da Vinci commented how much more magnificent fire is than water. Because if you have a flood and it devastates everything, it's just, you know, disease and smell and stench. You know, the post-flood issues are awful. It doesn't actually cleanse, it just invades. Sludge. Sludge. It's sludge. <laughs> yes, it's sludge. 
The good thing about a fire is it gets, you know, when fires have gone through like old cities and that they've just got rid of everything, you know, and it, it, is, a, it is a very purifying thing. It's very, it's very cataclysmic, but it's purifying. And Da Vinci said, you know, fire is a holier thing. Than, so that, that was interesting, but anyway. Um, the link to the burning bush, which is the inner, inner glory, um, when essentially fire consumes a husk and preserves the immortal and reveals it. So obviously in a fire you have um, fuel that is transformed when it interacts with the oxygen of the atmosphere, when there's sufficient focused energy. So without going into all the, all the chemistry of it, because I can't, um, and, and it's not the time to go through it, it is absolutely a metaphor of transformation when materials are transposed. And that idea of transformation seems to me to be what is picked up in the one Peter, you know, your faith is like a fire that's purified and so on. So, and, and I think the idea of the whole of creation being some crucible that's gonna be this magnificent chemical reaction, that's a resurrection reaction, is gonna transform its shape. 